0: Brought to you by SOCOM athlete, Cindy.
1: The trident is the only device that signifies you and identifies you as a SEAL operator. Every day I earn my trident, no matter where I'm at or what I'm doing, whether it's on the battlefield or on liberty, I earn my trident every day. Thanks for tuning in. America's number one resource for special operations preparation. Here with you is host, Jason Sweet.
0: Thank you for tuning in to SOCOM Athletes Podcast. Send me. This is your host, Jason. Today, I have the honor of bringing to you, former Navy SEAL and author of the book, SEAL of God, Chad Williams. Chad has an incredibly inspiring story to tell that's going to leave you on the edge of your seat. So sit back and get ready for another powerful episode of SoCom Athletes Podcast, Send Me. Chad, thank you so much for being willing to come on and share your story with us. How are you, brother?
1: Very good. I'm coming to you from Huntington Beach, uh, California, which is just my hometown. I've always loved it. It's the place I was daydreaming of when I'm you know, standing up there in a turret. Somewhere in Iraq. Just can't wait to get back to HB and be surfing in that ocean.
0: Surfing. Okay. You got to tell us how long you've been surfing, Chad. Pretty much as long as I can remember from the time
1: I could swim. You know, my dad started probably taking me out in the water around, you know, maybe five or six years old. And uh, I just really grew to love it. I love the ocean so much. I remember being a, a little kid and pretending to be a Navy SEAL, kind of crawling in and out of the pool, which is probably a a seed that was planted a little bit early on. And uh, I think it really gave me an edge to some degree because I was very familiar, you know, with the ocean and and the water going into seal training. I I remember some guys that definitely were, you know, in better shape than I was. They could outrun me. They could outwork me. Uh, There's just something about that water though. They would see these big waves. I I went through, you know, hell week in February. And I remember we had to do this uh, nighttime surf passage where we had this
0: huge,
1: swell. It was like a swell of the decade coming through. I mean, water too. And like waves that were getting close to 15 plus feet. And I remember seeing some of these guys that could outwork me, you know, out there on the beach, they are trembling in fear thinking about going out there into this water with these waves. But since it was so familiar to me, it was like, I'm going to a, a theme park. I'm excited. I can't wait to get out there and go in the water. I remember the guy right next to me, He just said, forget it. He dropped his oar and quit right there on the spot. He's like, I'm not going out there. I remember that just totally puzzled me. It's like, well, I guess that's the benefit of growing up, you know, down by the ocean, you know, like that, just having that familiarity.
0: Oh yeah. That's the power of mindset and the power of cognitive reframing, taking something that could be fearful or something that could be challenging, turning it around and and, and making it something positive, something that you're Mm going to go attack and dive into, so yeah. Chad, I- I'd love to hear more about your childhood and-, and what led you into the SEAL teams. But first, could you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now and tell us about your book, Seal of God, a bestseller. Congratulations on that, by the
1: way, bro. Yeah, thank you. So I think just kind of leading off with the-, the book aspect, you know, I got saved while I was in the SEAL teams and it really struck me, this realization that here we are, we're in this fight for, for freedom. You know, we want to liberate people. We want to set people free. We're fighting for freedom. And sometimes that freedom comes at the cost of bloodshed. And there are those that have gone before us and paid that ultimate price. You know, guys, the, the legacies we look back on in the SEAL teams, you know, part of our SEAL creed is, you know, in the worst of conditions, I'll rely upon the legacy of those who have gone before me to steady my resolve, to guide my every deed. So we will reflect on guys like Michael Monsoor, who jumped on the hand grenade, you know, sacrificing his life, saving the lives of others. You know, my mentor, Scott Halvinston. Uh, who was killed and hung from the Euphrates River Bridge. But one of the last things he said, you know, before he goes over there is, you know, who knows, Junior, perhaps it can make a difference. And so these guys, you know, are a reflection of these words. Greater love has no one than this one that lays down his life for his friends. And so the one who spoke those words is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And so I came to this realization while I was in while, when I got saved that, you know, we're in this fight for freedom and freedom comes at a cost. It's bloodshed. You know, our freedom isn't free. There are SEALs, there are soldiers that have shed their blood for earthly freedom. But then it hit me that this Savior, Jesus, in a very similar way, you know, He shed His blood, not for earthly freedom, but for eternal freedom. And when you consider what's at stake, you know, at best, we can save somebody's life temporally speaking here on earth, which is a good thing. But then there's this other battlefront where what's at stake is not a temporal life, but an eternal life. And so with that, I kind of realized the time that I have left in the teams is kind of a countdown for me. I'm feeling another calling, you know, another battlefront, another flank to get into. And then on the side, you know, kind of the the tent making skill set is doing some of these uh, corporate events and just talking to them about leadership, mental toughness, you know, motivation, uh, how you deal with adversity. Uh, I always seem to find a way to bring Jesus into those though, too.
0: Incredible, Chad. So on another battleground now. And you mentioned the verse, John 15, 13, no greater love is this than someone would lay down his life for his friends. What a, what a verse and something that really is a testimony to how we as Americans fight for each other on the Mm -hmm. battleground. I think
1: like a lot of young guys that might be watching right now, or just guys, wherever they find themselves, whatever season of life, you know, sometimes we can find ourselves in a place where we don't really have, you know, an, an aim, something to aim at And, you know, there's this saying, it's very true, that if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it. And unfortunately, you know, coming out of high school for me, that kind of became my aim at that time was nothing. And I was hitting that dead on. I tasted a little bit of what it was like to have an identity, you know, in in skateboarding. I was sponsored by Van Shoes. I was doing some competing. That's who I was. That's how I was known in high school. This is Chad, our friend. He's sponsored by Van Shoes. But eventually I got burned out on the skateboarding. I wasn't doing the competing so much anymore. And I I just didn't have sponsorship after that because they want you to compete. And then I'm like, wow, like, who am I? You know, here I am just attending a local community college. I didn't have any real big plans. All my peers are passing me by because I'm not even showing up. I remember going over to, you know, one of those food dispensers and, you know, they got the snacks in there and, and me and some buddies, we would Uh, always get a a box of these candies, the sweet tarts. They got an S on one side and a blank side on the other. We'd flip it like a coin at the beginning of the day. And if it landed on S, that meant we're going surfing today. And, uh, you know, if we didn't get our S, we would do best out of three, best out of five. Sometimes we'd just be like, you know what, the waves are so good, we're going. Well, you know, that found me failing all my classes. And so I remember pulling into the school parking lot. It's the end of the year, time to take finals. I was kind of just putting it off, right? Not really facing this mess up. <laughs> and then it just hit me, this realization, like, man, I'm turning out to be a loser. I mean, the kind of guy that no young man wants to be. And so when we're young, what do we get told? Hey, it's sky's the limit. You could do anything you want to do. Big word, like potential gets thrown around. That's all very true. But there does come a certain point in life where you need to kind of observe, you know, hey, like, what trajectory am I on right now? And so what hit me was like, I am turning out to be this loser I'm aiming at nothing, I'm hitting it, all my peers are passing me by, I'm not even making it the local community college. So now I'm like desperate, I don't wanna be that guy. And so I'm sitting in my truck about to go to class, I felt like my back was up against the wall. And for the first time, I really began to like brainstorm and try and capture the vision. Like what am I doing with my life? How do I turn this around? What am I aiming at? And I started off with this sort of broad idea, you know, which is fine, like do something meaningful do something significant. Don't waste your life. I'm not making it the local community cause. So how do I flip this all around? You know, there's a saying, you know, in, in the SEAL teams, and I'm sure it's prevalent amongst all the branches, anyone that picks up a weapon, it's a fundamental of shooting, aim small, miss small, you know, and the idea behind that isn't small thinking. The idea behind that is, you know, the more particular you could be about whatever it is you're aiming at, whatever it is, that's in your crosshairs. The more focus you bring to it, the better shot you have of hitting it. For instance, if I'm just aiming at some, you know, enemy insurgent that's, you know, trying to squirt or, you know, flank my team, and my goal is just to hit him somewhere, he's my target, and I pull that trigger and miss, what happens is I don't touch my target. But if I say forget just trying to hit him, here's my goal. What I'm trying to do is find, you know, that, that second, third button down on his T-shirt. So now I'm aiming small. Aim small. Maybe I don't hit that third button down. Uh, but the miss will be small. I don't hit the third button down, but I'll probably still find myself putting around through that guy, touching my target somewhere. Well, if you think about it, shooting is all about goal setting. You have a goal, you have a target you're trying to hit. You can apply that fundamental of shooting, aim small, miss small to goal setting or capturing vision in your life. What is it that's in your crosshairs? And so starting off with a broad, general idea, that's fine. Do something significant, but now you start, You got to start bringing some focus to it, right? And so as I'm sitting in my truck, I'm thinking, I know how to turn this all around. I want to go join the military. And then I start focusing in on what branch, you know? And then I'm thinking about, you know, uh, here's what I want to do. I want to go, go try and be a part of that most difficult, grueling military training. I want to be a Navy SEAL. So now I got my aim small, miss small. And I was so set on that, sitting in my truck, you know, as I'm about to go take finals that I don't stand a chance of making. Uh, that I just go all in. I'm like, well, if I'm going to be a frog man, I don't need to go to class anymore. Started my truck up and just took off out of that school parking lot.
0: No finals, huh? See you later. No
1: finals. See you later. And I had to deal with that later in life with my GI Bill when I needed to go get some transcripts and decide to pick up that culture again. So I wouldn't suggest that to (laughs) anybody, Uh, but it definitely was a sort of of an an all in. And for me, And maybe for many of the guys that are watching right now, honestly, I kind of felt like that was the hardest part in the whole process, figuring out what it is that I'm aiming at, because I just didn't know I was aimless. But once I had that sort of aim small, miss small, it's like, okay, now I have something to go for. It's just a matter of practical steps, you know, and getting there. And so I remember going home right away, just kind of assessing the situation. You know, how many pull-ups can I do? What can I do on, you know, push-ups and dips? And, and uh, then I got to let my dad know some bad news and good news as I right, presented right. it to him because he had no idea what was going on, you know, that year at school. So i let him know the bad news. Of course, he's just like, oh, man, you know, failing all these classes. What's the good news? So I'm waiting for that. You know, I'm like, it's okay, dad. It's all right because I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so you can kind of put yourself in his shoes for a moment there.
0: Did he, did he give you a, a funky look?
1: Oh, yeah. Because, you know, here's your son that hasn't demonstrated the discipline it takes to make it through the local community college. And now he's informing you, but it's okay, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so I could kind of, you know, I can comprehend where he's coming from with that look. And I realize I don't have a very good track record. You know, I didn't stick with playing ball. I didn't stick with skateboarding. I'm not making it through the local community college, but I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so he's just letting me know making sure I'm going into this ice wide open, like, hey, son, joining the military is not like any of these things you've ever done in the past that you kind of pick up and put down whenever you're over it. He says, if you want to join, and then maybe then you find out it's not for you. Or suppose you quit and don't make it through SEAL training. Just to be clear, you'll probably pick up a job like chipping paint off some boat off the coast of Japan.
0: Scraping barnacles.
1: And, and, and there's truth to that. You know, I mean, for the for the guys that don't make it, they're going off on those ships, right? you know, but I am determined, man. Like I am, I am not going to be that guy that quits. That's a motivational speech to me right there. You know, the, the more you tell me that there's a possibility that Chad, maybe you can't do this. You know, I bolt down. That's what I need. And so I kind of storm off and I, I realize actions speak louder than words. And so I'm just going to start preparing. And I was into it. Like, this is something I had a passion for. Like I, right. I really wanted this. And that's important. And so that kind of becomes the next question, right? Like once you have your aim small, miss small, like once you have that thing that's in your crosshairs, what kind of guy is it that actually hits that target in life? Well, I would suggest, and it comes right out of our seal creed, that it's that common man, but with uncommon desire to succeed, you know, and the key word there being desire. A lot of guys, I think that they write themselves off in life and say, you know, I just wasn't dealt the, the right deck of cards. You know, in life, I'm just playing my hand, just doing my part or I didn't come from, you know, the same pedigree or household as that person. I didn't get the same upbringing, same education. And they really just kind of pull on this whole like I'm a victim of my circumstances. You know, I, I didn't have the same privileges as those people over there. Well, look, man, like, yeah, there are certain people that get a different start in life, but your DNA doesn't determine destiny. What really determines it, if you will, is, is your heart your desire, your mindset. And all of us have control over that part. That's open and accessible to anybody. I mean, look at my mentor, Scott Helvinston. He's the youngest man to ever make it through SEAL training. He completed it. This is like, you have to take a second thought. at Like He completed it at 17 years old, not started. He was done at 17. How is that possible? The guy grew up in over 20 different foster homes. I mean, talk about a guy that wasn't the victim of his circumstances, right? But he had heart and desire. And so once you have that aim small, miss small, you got to be that common man, but with uncommon desire to succeed. And so I've got that desire. It's in me, but actions do speak louder than words. So through all this preparation, uh, my dad, I remember he invites me inside and he says, okay, you really want to do this? Like, yeah, dad, I want to do this. He goes great. Well, I set up a workout for you. What the Navy Seal? Check out my computer screen, and I'm thinking my dad doesn't know any Navy Seals, so you know what is this? You don't. Oh, you don't just, he like,
0: found somebody, didn't he, Chad? He. And
1: I'm thinking you don't just fight a Navy Seal, you know? Right. Especially in those days, right? Like early 2000s. So I'm, I'm very skeptical. You know, I know a lot of people claim to be Navy Seals. It's highly likely that you know you're not really meeting one when they claim it. And so my dad's like, Yeah, check out my computer screen. I'm looking at the, the screen now and I'm looking at an email and it's just the guy's reply. And all it is is this one liner. It just says, Can Chad come out and play tomorrow? And now I'm like, What? Like, come playing? out
0: and play, huh?
1: Yeah. So I'm like, Dad, hold on. Let me get this straight. You met some guy off the internet that says he wants to play with me and you're arranging this whole thing right now? He's like, No, no, no. He's a seal. He's a seal. I'm like, okay, I mean, what can I do? He wants me to go, I'll go. So, all right, I'll meet up with this guy. Well, as it turns out, there's more of a conversation that took place on the phone prior to that email that I had no clue about at the time. I didn't find out about until months later, but for those that are listening right now, I'll fill in that backdrop. On the phone, my dad told him, hey, look, my son wants to be a Navy SEAL, but he really has no idea what he's signing up for, what he's getting involved in. And so I'm asking for a favor. Would you be willing to meet up with my son? And what I'm asking you to do, I need you to just give it to him. Just crush him. If you can't beat this desire of becoming a SEAL out of him. So the guy thought about it for a while and then shot off the reply in the email. And that's what can Chad come out and play tomorrow meant where I find myself meeting up in a beach parking lot, you know, with a air quotes, Navy SEAL. Uh, But, oh, he looks the part, pointing his finger at me. You, Chad? Yes, sir. All right, Bubba. Yep, that was Bubba from that point forward. And uh, that was a rough one I didn't see coming. I mean, talk about an ambush. It started off smooth, just doing some push-ups and pull-ups and, you know, on the ground, doing different kinds of calisthenics. Next thing I know, we're out in the wetlands. He lets me take off on him, take the lead. He says, I'll catch up with me. I'm looking back. I'm not seeing this guy anywhere. And all I'm giving is this direction just keep going down this trail out into the wetlands. And so I start to get this idea in my head like, hey, maybe I'm too fast for this Navy SEAL. He can't catch up on the run. So I'm like this prideful, arrogant little teenage punk kid running. And then I'm looking over my shoulder, and it is like a scene at a Terminator 2 Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where that bad dude, the T 1000, You know, can like morph into these knife hands and chase down the moving vehicle. I'm looking back and I see this Navy SEAL coming down this trail with knife hands for me. And there's nothing I could do to keep that distance. I mean, he's closing in like a canine that just got let out of the back of a squad car. He catches right up to where I am. And then I never saw what was coming next, thinking that we're just running. Nope. That's where I'm greeted by his fist just going right into my stomach as I'm getting clotheslined on the spot. And I'll never forget the feeling of that wind, like the air just getting knocked out of me as I see blue sky and my back hasn't even touched the ground yet. And then there's just dirt up all around me. And he's jumping on top of me now, screaming in my face, has me by the shirt, throwing me around like a rag doll. I still remember that sound, the threads of my shirt ripping. And remember, put yourself in my shoes for a moment here. The only intel I'm operating on is some guy? My dad bit off the internet. Wants to
0: play with you on the beach.
1: He's assaulting <laughs> me, right? Like in the weather. He just
0: chased you down and tackled you.
1: Dude, I'm thinking child predator. Like this is happening right now. He's attacking me, and so I'm just trying to like survive. Honestly, I'm hanging on for dear life, just trying to like cover up. And he's screaming in my face. I feel that spit raining out, hitting me in the forehead and the cheek. And I don't understand anything he's saying. Cause this, this, this guy's going nuts. I mean, he's furious going ballistic, but then these words do come through crystal clear. He says, you want to be a Navy SEAL, you better stay three paces behind me. And there's just something about that moment that I can honestly say, just sitting here, like that was the moment that forever changed my life. I realized like, this is it, Chad, like, this is for real. And it's not later on in SEAL training you're going to be called upon. It is right here, right now. You are being tested. Are you really willing to die before you quit? I had this realization, man. Like if I quit right now, that's it for me. Like I'll forever be a quitter. This is going to set the tone for life. Like The way I respond in this moment is going to affect the trajectory of the rest of my life. And so like it or not, it's not later on. It is right here, right now. You better be willing to die before you quit. And so he gets up. And he says it again, three paces. I'm still going through the process of the wind knocked out of me, you know, after running as fast as we could. And now he's turning and taking off, showing no mercy. Uh, And man, I just, I resurrected from the ground and I'm going after this guy. And I'll, I'll be honest with you guys just to kind of compress things a little bit here, but I never went through a more difficult singular workout. And I'm talking about all my experiences in shield training. I never went through a more difficult singular workout, I should call it a beatdown session, than this encounter with this Navy SEAL Scott is This just went on for miles. But we finally get to a point where he ends it. And so, we're done. It seems he's pacing back and forth. He kind of looks like one of these cage fighters, though just waiting for the referee to say their words, let's get it on. I'm thinking this guy like wants to fight me right now. And I'm like this 19-year-old maybe 18 at the time, like teenage skater pond kid. Like I don't want to project to the Navy still that I'm willing or wanting to fight him at all. So I remember just kind of looking down and not having any direct eye contact with him. I don't want to set this guy off. I'm thinking to myself, like, don't look at him. Just use your peripherals, man. Just, uh, (laughs) and he breaks this really awkward tension by pointing at me for a second time that day, like he did in the parking lot. And he says, Hey, because if we would have gone another mile or two, would you have stayed with me? And so we've gone miles. And uh, I just told him what came from the heart. And it's that desire, guys. That's what I'm talking about. Having that common being that common man with uncommon desire to succeed. I told him I'll die before I quit. And he just gets this big smile on his face. Completely changes. I mean, he look he goes from looking like he wants to fight me. Now he's smiling, saying, Great, you want to meet up again for another workout tomorrow? <laughs> and now- I'm puzzled, right? Like, I'm thinking, like, this guy, what was that on the trail back there? Like, he's kind of going in and out like a schizophrenic. Like, was that a, a flashback he had? And so I'm thinking, don't bring it up. Like, I'm not even going to ask about it because it might set it off again. And so I'm just like, I don't know what to make of him. I'm, I'm just like, I agree, though. I go, okay, yeah. Thankfully, it was no longer like that. It went from being these beatdown sessions to something else. And he, he hopped on the phone. And I found out about this over lunch with the two of them months later. Uh, that's where Scott was telling him that, look, I know what you want me to do. I, I, I gave it a go, more than a go. And, uh, but I think your son might have what it takes to make it. And, you know, he took a liking to me. He said, I, I would like to start meeting up with them." And so from that point forward, I began to meet up with this Navy SEAL, that mentor of mine, Scott Helvinston. And uh, thankfully, it was no longer those beatdowns. It became much more of a, a building up. Wow. And I kind, of allu- I kind of alluded to how extraordinary Scott is with just the fact right. that he holds that record of being the youngest man to make it through SEAL training. But uh, there's a lot of records he holds. He's also uh, the, he's a world champion athlete. He was the fastest Navy SEAL on the SEAL training obstacle course. At the time, he was the only man to beat the beast on the TV program called Man vs. Beast, where he raced a chimpanzee through an obstacle course, pulling ahead of the monkey on monkey bars. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? And, uh, here I am, I'm getting trained by him. He's getting me ready to make it through, uh, seal training. And, and he became like a second father to me. In fact, you know, I moved on in life from just being Bubba to one day I became junior. He really uh, took me under that wing. And, it's, a ready for it. it's a good promotion.
0: It's a good promotion there, Chad. Chad, I got, I got to pause real quick. This is a phenomenal story and there's so much there. And I want to just extract a few things from your story because there is, there's a few key elements to your success here. Obviously, God had a purpose for you, and he was lining up the resources for you to make it to the SEAL team so he could do something big in your life. But let's go back for a second. You mentioned the word focus several times. You mentioned the phrase, aim small, miss small. You mentioned the phrase, aim small, miss small. And in order to aim small, miss small, in order to focus, we have to remove distractions out of our life. And it seems that these distractions, whether it be a good distraction or a bad distraction, responsibilities or even something bad like a vice or something like that, these distractions can keep us from focusing. So it seems that once you're able to get in a routine or have a mentor help align you on the right path or even join the military and have that focus, have that discipline, because you have your bearing now on your compass, that seems to be what helps a lot of guys like yourself that have that potential. So here you are, you didn't have anything to aim at, but you're trying to find yourself, you're trying to discover yourself, and then you're led into becoming a Navy SEAL. Your dad goes and finds Scott Helvenston. may he rest in peace by the way, your mentor who takes you out and gives you a serious beat down Some crazy stuff happens in the middle of nowhere on the trail, right? He wants to see if you still want a piece of this. He wants to see if he can scare you off, but you're still right on his tail. I got to die before I quit. I got to bring something up, Chad. Uh, I want to hear your opinion on this. Um, Unfortunately, we tragically lost a a Navy sailor recently uh, who Mm -hmm. passed away Friday afternoon um, after Hell Week was completed so you see this this level of training sometimes leads to death. This training is is extremely intense. Your focus is listen, you got to kill me first before I quit. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. And you seem to be really focused on the goal instead of focused on not quitting or not failing. So mm-hmm. I want to pick back up with where you were with Scott and where you were with your dad. What an amazing story so far.
1: Yeah, and I you know, he got me ready you know, he, he totally got me ready. I I went from a kid that didn't even own a pair of running shoes. I, I don't even think I ever had a pair before. Uh, he gave me my first pair. I remember he looked at my feet after that first run and I'm in like a pair of Vans, you know, skateboard shoes. And he's like, you got any running shoes? I'm like, no, this is it. And so he gave me my first pair of running shoes. Uh, but I mean, he, he really got me ready like towards that, that probably top three of, of the class uh, whenever it came to like the, the running and the swimming pull-ups and push-ups and everything in that sense. And so I sign up, I remember he says, uh, you know, it's about time to start getting this ball rolling here. So I sign up, I got a date, it's set, I'm shipping off. And he took an opportunity, as he put it, to go overseas one last time. And his turnaround was quicker than my turnaround. Uh, he ended up going out the door before I was going out to boot camp. And so he's talking on the phone with me, telling me, all right, Junior, I'm about to go do this thing. He's referring to going off to Iraq. And uh, he says, I just want you to know something, though, that I've never told anybody I've ever trained before. I mean, I don't even know how to put into words, you know, the words that are coming next, you know, how much it meant. He says, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. I mean, that that hit me. And just to hear that from him, like I knew I was going to die before I quit we would be in the car sometimes and he'd talk about how you never know who's going to make it. And, uh, I, I was kind of dying inside to hear him say, but I know you'll make it. He wouldn't give me that. He wouldn't say it, but boom, you know, there he is. He's saying it on the phone, I couldn't wait. I'm like, dude, I can't wait to make him proud, you know, and to do this thing, stop being this loser in this parking lot in junior college and, and, you know, go do something with my life, become a seal. And so he, uh, is reminding me of the timeline, how he's only going to be gone a couple months. That's about the same amount of time. I'll be over there at boot camp and you know, I got to get through age school at the time. You know, that was kind of the, the path at the time. And then, you know, you, you get to start SEAL training in, in San Diego. And so that's where Scott lives in San Diego. He says, he'll be back in time. And he says, uh, he'll see me make it through. And so we get off the phone, Sarah goodbyes, Scott's gone. I'm just a handful of days away from going and I'm up one day. TV's on in the background, and, uh, I mean, what do I see? It just totally shocks me. I see Scott smiling on TV, and I'm thinking, what is he doing on TV? You know, he's been on TV a lot. He's been on, uh, you know, his combat missions, reality show, Man vs. Beast, uh, you know, other things. People always try to get a hold of him. He's been on TV plenty of times. So my immediate thought was just, what's this next thing he's doing on TV? And I thought he's supposed to be in Iraq right now smiling picture of him typical shot they use of somebody before they bring them on a program i wasn't really tuned into the words in the background uh and then i see in the lower part of the screen though it says scott's birthday followed by a dash it says march 31st 2004 and before i could really process in my mind the obvious meaning of that i just didn't have that time to translate in my head and it switches from the smiling picture of him to so now it cuts to graphic video footage of a, a vehicle engulfed in flames in Fallujah, Iraq, which turned out to be the vehicle that he was in along with their other Americans. And now it's cutting to just these different shots and these video scenes of this angry Iraqi mob and this group of insurgents that had ambushed the vehicle. They videotaped everything they're doing and they're mutilating their bodies now, you know, ripping them out of the vehicles, their lifeless bodies and taking sticks and rods and, doing everything they can just to mess them up. And then they find rope and wrap it around their legs and go dragging them through the streets of Fallujah as if it was a parade to them. I mean, these guys are ecstatic. They're celebrating. And I'm just staring and watching this in shock as they hang them upside down from the Euphrates River Bridge. And then they set their bodies on fire. And they look into a camera just like this. And they're repeating over and over in Arabic. And there's the subtitles below. And I'll never forget these words because I heard them loud and clear. They're saying this to every American, but I heard them loud and clear. Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. I think pretty neat to say, I'll never have the words to describe what that moment and all the, the surrounding moments were like. It, it's one of those moments. It just, it changes you as a human being big time. And I went through the full spectrum of, you know, how we deal with grief, right? From denial, like this isn't real maybe Scott's on some covert operation. He had to fake a death to, I knew who I saw. You know, I know that guy. I know those arms. I idolize him. I took mental pictures of his arms sitting next to him in a car. Like I want my, my arms to be like Scott's one day. I'm looking at those same arms lifeless now. And so it's, this is real, you know, to, I, I landed on just anger. And so that's really like one of the, the thing that I, I just ended on with that grief was just, Anger. I heard those words loud and clear for just the graveyard of Americans. I wanted to go through that TV screen and get to these guys without any training, just recklessly throw myself at these guys. I do everything I could to just rip their esophagus and their hearts out in my bare fingers. I don't care. And so that is a fuel to live on. And thankfully those reasons would mature along the way, but I'm just trying to be real. That's where I was at anger and that sense of revenge is a fuel that burns and it burns bright not a healthy fuel to burn on but that's just kind of where i was at and so i ended up writing scott's name on the inside of my hat you know i remembered his words to me on the phone because when we lose somebody i think that's one of the things we all do is you go back to that last time you're with them the last conversation you had and uh, that's when i remembered his words he says junior i know you're gonna make it through SEAL training Uh, that really began began the forging process right there. And it's part of our seal creed. You know, how do we deal with adversity? We're forged by adversity. And so you'll either be that guy that quits, the quitter, right? You'll fail by adversity. You just kind of roll over and play dead. You get knocked down and, you know, people say, wow, well, yeah, they're never getting back up from that one. Or you find a way to be forged by it. And that forging process began and remembering Scott's words to me, I became determined that I'm going to do this. And I just, I want to do it for so much more now. I want to do this in honor and memory of my mentor, and I'm not going to lie. At The time I want revenge. So, when it comes to like, what is it that fuels you? F- fuels you, or like, what? It, like, how bad do you want this? Are you willing to die before you quit? Which I think every guy that is going to go through special ops training, you know, you, you have to have that mentality. What's on the line? And so, what I put on the line, like what I would never quit on, was my mentor's name. And so writing his name on the inside of my hat, on the inside bill, so that you can glance up and see it. It's like when things got really difficult, when I was getting surf tortured in February and that water so cold, it takes your breath away. And you feel like you're going to die. I mean, you're going through hypothermia and you're getting pushed to limits that you didn't know existed. In those, in those moments where I had to dig deep, I would look up at his name and dude, you would have to take me out of here in a body bag before I ever quit on that name right there. And so if you really do have that willingness, statistically, by the law of averages, you're not going to die. You'll make it through. But as you said, and like we saw, you know, there's a, a young man that he was willing to die before he quit and he didn't quit. Uh, but unfortunately, in the process of it, you know, he, he, he gave his life. You got to go into this training with your eyes wide open. It is a possibility. Do you really want it uh, that bad?
0: Thank you for sharing that Chad and uh, my heart goes out to your loss with Scott and I challenge our listeners out there to look up Scott and read a little bit more about him and uh, the legacy that he left behind and Chad, thank you for raising awareness on your, your mentor and your brother. Uh, There's nothing like having a mentor. So Chad, you, uh, you were in Bud's class 254. Is that correct? I mean, you talked about your motivation for making it through, but what year was this that you went through? And it was a February class. So, I mean, the water was cold. You earned it.
1: Yeah. So that would be February, 2005. And I wanted that. I wanted a a winter hell week, you know, because I, I think to some degree, you know, like, Hey, I went through the toughest version of this. You know, there's something about those summertime classes. Some guys they intentionally try and time things out to make it through a summertime class. I, I wanted the hardest version of it so that there was no doubt in my mind, you know, that I I, I went through basically the full benefit of SEAL training. So I'm glad I got that winter class. In fact, it was so devastating that February Hell Week, what my class went through that. After that, they didn't do February Hell Week for almost 10 years. You know, isn't it interesting that they just came off of the February, you know, Hell Week. We lost a lot of guys. Out of 173 guys that started in my class by graduation day, there's only 13 of that original class number still standing around. You guys know, in, 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 com- everybody. Yeah, in, in comparison to that. And, you know, I would say we graduated Hell Week. I don't know the exact number. It was something like in the 20s. You know, like probably low bid 20s, but then you lose like another half of that class, you know, in pool comp. You either lose them or they get rolled and they wind up in some other class, you know, or you lose them to to injuries. Uh, But yeah, 13 made it straight through that pipeline, right? Without, you know, getting set back in any way. But uh, by comparison, you know, I remember there was a summertime class before us and their motto, because they had 75 degree water. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's a pool. You know, and they they would say uh, 75 degrees and 75 guys because they secured, uh, I think, their hell week with uh, 75 guys. And so, like, w- what a difference, right, in, in comparison, you know, those winter times, you know, hell weeks. Uh, but, uh, yeah, man, it's it's tough stuff. And I remember that graduation day, by far, one of the happiest moments of my life because here we are, you know, going from that parking lot. You know, I remember like I'm parked on the asphalt in this parking lot, just a complete loser at junior college. All my peers are passing me by. Now I'm walking out on some asphalt, the grinder, you know, where we're normally getting beat down by these instructors. Now I'm having this moment where I'm graduating and I'm looking up. I remember thinking, Scott, we did this. I remember exactly where I was at as I stepped out, looking up, having that thought, and then looking in the back and just seeing the people that are there, you know, family and friends that are there to see this moment as you're about to get that trident, you know, pinned into your chest, surreal, you know, that you've done it, you know, you, you, you welcome to their brotherhood. This is your identity. You've become a Navy SEAL. Definitely one of the happiest, most fulfilling moments of my life, but some surprises after that too.
0: Chad, quick question for you. Um, p- part of the SEAL creed, earn your trident every day. Can you tell our listeners what that phrase means to you and how you apply that to your life now? Sure. I mean, you put so much blood, sweat, tears, hard work, determination
1: into earning that trident, right? Into becoming a Navy SEAL. And there's that moment where you graduate where you can eat it up and be satisfied, like drink it up, take it in, enjoy, but don't rest there. You know, a lot of people could put in all this work in a sense to get to a certain place. And then after that, they just kind of let it all go. Well, this is so important because in the SEAL teams, you earn your Trident every day. Why? Because we're dealing with an enemy that is constantly evolving, adapting, and becoming more sophisticated. We're supposed to stay on the cutting edge. And so if I'm just relying on tactics that are good enough to deploy me right then and there, like I'm ready to go. After graduation, theoretically, and some guys do, you can immediately deploy. And you are up to speed on you know, what SEAL teams are doing overseas. And without meeting any of these guys, I know the standard operating procedures. I know how to perform close quarters combat. I don't even need to communicate out loud. I know what they're going to do without any communication. We just react. But that skill set is perishable. Perishable in what sense? Not that you forget how to do it, but that it only stays relevant for so long because our enemy is becoming more sophisticated. We need to adapt and evolve to that. So we're striving for innovation, always looking for a better way to do things. And if we're not doing that, if we're just relying on old tactics while our enemy is becoming more advanced, that's a great way to get killed on the battlefield. And so in the SEAL teams, it's earn your trident every day. As a new guy in the team, when you ask like, hey, why do we do it this way? You'll never hear the response, not in the SEAL teams. We do it this way because that's the way we've always done it. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's a great way to get killed on the battlefield. And instead, what they do sometimes is they'll look to the new guy, right? And they'll say, hey, you know, you got a fresh set of eyes. Just out of curiosity, not going to go with what you have to say unless it's good. But, you know, here's our operation tonight. If you were the assault leader, how would you plan it out? And so you go back to you know, the container ship that you're basically living in, you know, overseas and map it out, bring it to that assault leader. And maybe you have an idea or two they like. And so they like that, that freshness right outside the box thinking, you know, in the SEAL teams. So earning that trident every day is just never resting on your laurels. Don't sit around, you know, don't ever think that you've ever really fully arrived. We're, we're earning that trident, all that work it takes to get that trident. You keep going forward from that point forward. Earn that trident every day, and so that is one of the lessons I certainly learned. You know, after graduating, one of the happiest days of my life, one of the most fulfilling moments of my life. Uh, but soon thereafter, also learning, hey man, you earn that trident every day.
0: Well said, Chad. And for our listeners out there, something that I learned from my experience in the special operations community is applying the excellence that you apply to your job to other facets of your life, whether it be as a friend. As a husband, whether it be something as simple as cooking food around the house or cleaning or taking care of doing the maintenance on your assets at home, applying that lifestyle to your life can equal success. It shouldn't Mm -hmm. just be compartmentalized to to when you go to work, you have loyalty and commitment and you give it everything you got, but then you get home and you're not doing that in other facets of your life. That can lead to a lack of, of balance. Um, so I love how you said that, Chad, and I love the the SEAL creed, uh, that part, earn your trident every day. Um, so Chad, back to Hell Week, what were some of the most challenging evolutions for you to get through?
1: Mm, definitely surf torture, without a doubt. Uh, even even with all just... your
0: surf experience, huh? I mean, that water, it gets down to what, 54, 55 in February in San Diego? If I, I mean, remember correctly,
1: brutal. yeah, I remember, if I remember correctly, in our Hell Week, we dropped down to 51. Uh, in, in at least one of those days, we had horrible weather that week.
0: I mean, it was 51, nasty, huh?
1: yeah, it was a nasty week. I mean, we had some serious swell. We had storms rolling in. We had rain. I mean, it was it was bad. And uh, even with all of that experience in the water, yeah, I'm good to go as far as like waves go, right? But that cold, I don't care who you are. You know, there's nothing that could really prepare you for that. You just got to have a really good why. Like, why am I here? Because that why is about to get seriously tested in a way that I feel like running can't get to, you know, getting beat down with like push-ups and pull ups and flutter kicks. It can't touch that why the same way that surf torture does. There's just something about it. And so surf torture by far the most difficult thing for me, especially because of my size. I was a very small guy. Going through training, uh, that was a concern leading into it, right? I was a buck forty five going in. It's like, man, you got to start put on some weight because that water is going to get you. I did everything I could to put on weight. Uh, I, I finally got up to about a one sixty five before I went into boot camp, and that was from force feeding myself all the time. As soon as I got back to you know eating semi like normal because I wasn't able to force feed myself the same way, I just went right back down to that one forty five. And how we got down in the one thirties. And so, so you had no insulation,
0: small- right? I mean, you, That's you, it. you were freezing.
1: So the instructors, they play head games, right? They'll say, all right, we're all day in there in the water, dark hours in the morning. That water's so cold takes your breath away. You're linked arms with your buddies and the instructors over the bullhorn will be like, all right, we're going to do this till three of you give up and quit. And so here I am small guy, right? And I'm next to maybe like kind of a husky guy. And I'm already doing the jackhammer. I'm already like shaking from the cold. And I remember this guy, you know, linked arms with me and he's looking over at me and he's not even shaking yet. And he's just looking at me like I'm that low hanging fruit. Like all I got to do is outlast you. And I'm shaking thinking, dude, I got to outlast this guy and he's not even anywhere near my level yet. So how deep down this abyss of coldness do I have to go before he finally gets to the level that I'm at right now? Like, where do I got to be to get him down here? And then how bad is it going to be for me until this guy's finally saying, I'm tapping out, I'm not doing it anymore. And so that's where small guys really suffer a lot is in those surf tortures. Whereas, you know, you got a little bit of an edge when it comes to running and swimming and all the pull-ups and push-ups, because it's all calisthenics. It's all body weight stuff. So I'd fly, I'd fly on the runs, you know, I'd be top three, but I was definitely one of the first three that was suffering, you know, during the surf tortures. And so surf tortures were definitely the ones that that got me digging deep the most. And those instructors would always get their quitters. You know, if they say they're going to go to three guys quit, they're going to get, they, that's the game they win every time. They're never going to let us win those ones. And, uh, you know, during Hell Week, you run over 200 miles, they say, with a, a boat or a telephone log, you know, wherever you go. Certainly, wasn't counting the miles, but looking back on the stats of it, you know, wow, all right, that makes sense. And uh, the boat's not light, you know, on top of your head. It rubs through the hair and through the skin and the top of your head. You know, you can go to Coronado, San Diego, and there's no wondering who's going through SEAL training right now. You know, all the Bud students, you know, they got these circular bald spots on top of their head as they're walking around in, in town. Imagine not a dry moment for those five and a half days. You get four hours of sleep. You know, most are probably already know that's not per night. That's it. You're gonna get you're gonna accumulate four hours for the next five and a half days. That's all you're gonna get. And then on top of all that, you know, sleep deprivation and surf torture and physical exertion, I think a funny one to look back on was the hallucinations. You know, I grew up watching ninja turtles and some looking down in the water. I mean. I'm seeing like Leonardo popping up out of the water, it's so real. I'm trying to whack him. You know, other guys are panicking and saluting out into the dark ocean. It's like, what do you see? It's like they think they see the Statue of Liberty. Other people, you know, they they ask like, did you just see that guy riding on the bicycle? It's like, bro, Jesus could walk on water, but there's nobody riding bicycles out here right now on the water. And so, looking back on it, you know, th- those are some of the funny moments. Not so fun, you know, when you're going
0: through it hallucination and that happens from sleep deprivation for our listeners out there. Some crazy stuff you'll see. So Chad, you secured hell week with your team, went on to phase two, did some dive operations and then went on to phase three and SQT parachuting, jumping, all kinds of stuff. And then you landed yourself on a seal team. Where did you end up going?
1: So I ended up on seal team one and while we're kind of in that process of, of doing this, this workup, you know, getting ready to go and deploy, I was also kind of dealing with like this sort of uh, existential crisis, if you will. You know, here's the thing is that I really put a lot into becoming a Navy SEAL and I didn't like how my life was going on the other end of that. But I really felt like once I become a SEAL, I'll have like some sense of fulfillment. I mean, that would be quite an accomplishment, become a seal, you know, that's your identity. Like you can kind of like walk around with your chest up and your shoulders rolled back. You could, you could be happy with yourself if you do something like that. Like I've achieved success at different levels before in life with like the skateboarding and competing, but uh, not nothing on this level. I really felt like I would, I would just have some type of enlightenment. And what I, I didn't really expect was, It's like, I quickly realized that, that enjoyment of becoming a Navy SEAL, which is a great moment, you know, that you eat it up, but it only lasted like that day. I realized I'm still the same guy. And and I put so much great hope in becoming a Navy SEAL thinking I could live on that, you know, like that'll be something to live on right there. And, And instead, you know, realizing I'm the same guy, there was sort of this sense of like, here I am on a team. I'm a certain guy on the outside around family members and friends. And this isn't foreign or unique to me. I've talked with other team guys, same exact thing. I'm the certain guy on the outside winning reality underneath it all. I felt like I was just like deteriorating. I felt like I was a dead man, you know, walking around. And so while I'm kind of going through that and it was years later, I'd hear these words spoken over the radio by a, a philosopher I thought, man, those words hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what I experienced. He says, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved, that which he thought would deliver the ultimate. And in the end, it lets him down. Yeah, more than, more than accurate right there. I mean, that hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what I experienced graduation day and moving forward. And this isn't something unique to me not, and not just other team guys. Look, you see this all the time in the lives of you know, people that, in a sense, have climbed their version of the top of the world. You know, professional athletes, rock stars, movie stars, they got everything the world has to offer, right? They climb to the top. They're at the top of their totem pole. But if we're being honest, what do we see going on in their lives? It's a constant drama as playing out. They're destroying their own lives with drugs and alcohol. You know, imagine having the dream job of, you know, getting to travel the world on that show, Parts Unknown. Anthony Bourdain, you know, what a, what a, what a job. I remember I used to watch that and think, this guy gets to travel the world. See different cultures, eat food, and get paid to do it. And what's going on inside of his life that you don't see from the outside looking in? The guy secretly is so miserable underneath it all. He's taking his own life. And we sit back as onlookers, and we're just like, why? Like, why? Why would you do that? Like, don't you know what you have? Don't you know what people would trade just to be in your shoes? But maybe that's just it. Like having all the world has to offer isn't really all that it's cracked up to be. And we hate to hear stuff like that because, you know, we live in America where it's all about the pursuit of happiness. We're trying to find that happiness, that fulfillment in the land of the free. Happiness today, I'd suggest, doesn't mean what it meant when those words were originally penned. You know, happiness back then was, you you found happiness in the external back then. The happy life for them You know, J.P. Moreland points out that, you know, a happy life was all about living a life of wisdom and virtue. You think of the greatest generation, you know, World War II, uh, they, 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 they spent themselves towards something bigger and greater than themselves. That was the happy life. You know, or going back to the founding of our nation, John Adams, you know, he says, your generation speaking to our generations all future generations, your generation will never know how much it costs my generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you will make good use of it. So for them, that was the happy life. That was the fulfilled life. It was all external. You sacrifice, you lose yourself to find yourself in a sense. Happiness today doesn't mean what it meant back then. You know, happiness today, what we've done is I think we've poured into happiness a different meaning. Happiness now is all about the, the self. It's the selfish self as Moreland points out, you know, it, it's all about how can I find fulfillment? What, what does this mean to me? What's in it for me? And you hear people talk like, we're living in a selfie generation, right? It's like we are living in some of the most narcissistic times for people are lovers of themselves. And you ask them, you know, why, why do you want to go do X, Y, Z? You know, why is it that you're pursuing that? Sometimes the answer you get is, well, I'm just loving myself. I'm looking out for me. I'm working on my own brand. And so I hate to hear stuff like that because I know, you know, that's, that's, that's never going to be enough, you know, when, when the going gets, it's tough. And so that's kind of what happiness has become today. It's more about emotion and feeling rather than external. And, and that's why it's so fleeting. And the way you know that, you know, Oh, that's what happiness means. Yeah. Because if you ask somebody today, if they're happy, You know, if you want to try and find out if they're happy, what do you ask them? How are you feeling? And so happiness is all about feelings. Whereas when those words were written, I don't think that it was anchored in feelings. I think it was anchored in living that life of wisdom and virtue. And so unfortunately, I'm kind of falling into this, you know, version of happiness, right? Is that I don't feel fulfilled. I feel like I'm hungry and thirsty still for more. But here's the tragedy. It's just like those words one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate. In the end, it lets him down. I'm hungry and thirsty for more, but unlike all the previous times in life where I could just aim higher and go for more. Oh, go! I'm not satisfied. Maybe I didn't go for something big enough. Oh, I'm still thirsty for something. Maybe I need to climb a little bit higher. Oh, I've become a Navy SEAL now. I mean, that's kind of a mountain peak. I, like. If there is something more, I realize if this doesn't do it, nothing will. And so what do you do when you're hungry and thirsty for more, but now there is no next. Like, what do you do when you say, I'll just gain a little bit more elevation and they turn to you and say, no, there is no more elevation to climb. You're at the peak of the mountain and yet wanting more, but no next. That's where you get the truth of those words. One of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience when he's achieved, that which he thought would deliver the ultimate in the end, it lets him down. You see this in the sphere of so many, right? Professional athletes, rock stars, movie stars, Whatever it is, people that climb their version of the top of the world. Becoming a SEAL was my version of the top of the world. I realize I'm the same old guy. Jesus puts it brilliantly. This This is the best way to frame what was going on. He says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but in the end loses his soul? Boom. That was it. I gained my version of the whole world, but my soul was not right. It was not right with the creator. And just here's the reality, guys. If you don't have any peace with your creator, have no expectation to ever experience any true peace here on earth. And so on that team, I'm just kind of like internally dealing with this and being a fake person on the outside, like I'm good to go. But secretly at that stage of my life, I was more miserable than I'd ever been. And I thought if anything to look forward to, It's just, man, getting a little get back for Scott overseas. Like I just couldn't deploy soon enough. And so in the process of all of that, I kind of adopted that work hard, play hard mentality. And so since I felt like I didn't feel anymore, you know, I I just kind of really gave into what is it that makes me feel? What is it that stimulates me? Well, on the West Coast, you know, the SEALs are kind of known. We have that reputation to be in Hollywood you know, we're Hollywood Seals. We, we we like to go out there and have fun, you know, in that off time. We like to, to play hard. Well, that's what would just stimulate me. That's what gave me a little bit of feeling inside is just go out, drink, cut loose with the guys and be crazy. And that led into a lot of stupidity, you know, with the drinking to the point of, you know, just blackout drunk and, you know, waking up in places you didn't remember how you got there. and The people They're telling you, hey, do you remember what you did last night? And you're like, no, you know, and let's hear it. And it's just shameful stuff. And you try and laugh it off like it's something to laugh about when in reality it's just personal robbery. And so I was getting pretty low in that aspect. And uh, I think that I I had some people that care about me that were looking out for me and kind of confronting me, you know, saying, look at man, like, you're really blowing it. Um, You know, you're, you're throwing this all away. And so I, I agreed just to get them off, just to get them off my back. I was like, all right, I'll go to this church thing you want me to go to. And so I grew up kind of going to church and it was something that I hadn't done in a long time. I kind of felt like, you know, yeah, I'm on the team. Yeah. You know, I put Christian on my dog tag when I went to boot camp. you know, you got to pick something to put on there. And so, uh, yeah, I'm cool with God. I believe in God. I'm not an atheist. Yeah. Jesus is my guy. The reality was, is I didn't know. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't have like a real relationship, you know, with him. I had an awareness to God. That was about it. And I knew that Jesus was, you know, probably the most important, but did I really look into it? Did I really pay attention to to, to the message? No.
0: Is that kind of like, Hey, I know there's a a God out there. I know there's a higher power. Hey, I've heard the story of Jesus. You know, I acknowledge that, but I'm not really living for, is that kind of what you're saying? Like, I'm not diving into it. I'm not living for it.
1: This is who I was. Anytime I fell into any kind of trouble, anytime I was in a bad situation, in a heart, I'm that guy that's like praying to God. God, I know you're out there. I know you're real. Like, if you get me out of this one, I know I'm not living a life that is pleasing to you. Like, I knew it. I knew I was living a life contrary to like, like what God would. Be happy with I, I turn my back on God the way I live my life, and so with my lips I would acknowledge God's existence, but in my actions I lived like He didn't exist. I lived like He wasn't looking down and watching me. But at the same time, I knew I was being watched, and I felt this sort of guilt. And it's kind of like what you were talking about earlier: like how is it that we could be fighting, you know, for good unless there is such a thing as evil? And if there is such a thing as good and evil, like where does that standard come from? Is it just arbitrary? Is it just something that we've made up in America? Is it only good because our society says it's good? And so does society decide what's good? Or is it the individual that decides what's good? Well, if that's the case, that's like, it's just the the wind can blow that around. And so there's nothing actually really good then. It's just whatever we make it up to be. And so it's like a social contract. It's just imaginary. But if there's no God in the universe, no God looking down, you know, then, 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 Goodness is whatever you believe it is or whatever your society says it is or whoever has the biggest guns or has the most power. Well, there's, there's nothing really good about that. You know, that's pretty ridiculous. That means that if Hitler was successful in what he was trying to accomplish and he wound up exterminating anyone that disagreed with him, well, that would mean that goodness was whatever he said that it, it was. No, what he did was evil regardless you know, independent of people's opinions. And so if something is truly good, it has to be independent of human opinion. It has to be something that transcends us bigger and greater than us. And I would say that the anchor point for that moral goodness is that creator, that God. And so I just knew I wasn't right, you know, with him. So I was that kind of guy that when things were messed up and like that saying, there's no atheists in foxholes, I knew how to call and so I'd call out to God, God, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll follow you. And then it would seem like he would show up in a sense, you know, I'd get through whatever storm I was in and then suddenly get that spiritual amnesia, right? Like, what was that deal I made with you, God? You know, and kind of go on about my life without him.
0: I and think that's, everybody- That's tough because like God is, he He is a father to us, right? And And I became a father recently and I'm so thankful for that. And I think about like, if my son- only talked to me or my son only came to me when he needed something, but never said, I love you never just wanted to hang out or anything like that. What kind of relationship is that? That's a one sided relationship. And and to touch on another thing that you brought up, Chad, is you said, okay, if, if Hitler believes that it's okay to exterminate Jewish people, what makes him right? Or what makes him wrong? Unless there is some kind of objective Mm -hmm. truth. And so For our listeners out there, there's something that is called an objective moral standard. It means that there is a a moral standard that we can all agree on that is true, or we can all agree on that is right or wrong. But in this world, I think we all realize that we can't all agree on something. So that's why we need a judge. That's why we need a mediator, someone in the middle to say, nope, this is the truth. This is what's right. And since the beginning of the existence of our country, God has been that judge.
1: Yeah. And that's what makes it objective, right? Is it's independent of people's opinions. And so that's the thing about truth. Truth is true, regardless of somebody's opinion. There was a point in time where popular mainstream opinion might've been that the world was flat. What was the truth? The truth that it was round. And now mainstream opinion, we can't say everybody, but mainstream opinion is that the world is round. What's the truth? That it's round. So what changed? Truth never changed. It was round when people thought it was flat. It's round when people think it's round. What changes human opinion? Opinions can change. And so our goal in life, I think, is to uh, try our best to align our opinion with what is true. And so if you say things like it is objectively wrong to torture babies for the fun of it or try to exterminate Jews or kill everybody murder those that don't you know believe in your religion that is wrong if you truly do believe that's wrong and that is wrong regardless of human opinion then what you're doing is you're showing that you know there is an objective standard that is out there but how do you how do you justify that objective standard you can't justify it based off of mere people's opinions because that's arbitrary and that's subjective You can't justify it based off of society because we've seen even a mainstream group, you know, like, uh, you know, popular opinion could be that the world is flat when it's round. You can't base it upon that. It has to find its grounding, its anchor point in something bigger and greater than human beings. And that transcendent anchor point would be God. And so if in life, is uh, you observe that there really is real right and real wrong that exists, what you might not realize is that implies that there is a creator God who is the objective moral standard, you know, for that. And so, yeah, that's just kind of like where we find ourselves in, in terms of that level of, of goodness. And, and I, I just, I knew I was, I was off, you know, I have a conscience. Con means with science means knowledge with knowledge. I knew I wasn't right, you know, with the creator, uh and i finally just got to this point of confrontation where it was just like man you know it's time to get this straightened out and so i hear this story about uh, a soldier by the name of naaman it comes out of second kings chapter five this guy's got the identity he's really got it going on he's uh you know had great success in battle entourage of men that highly respect him the identity that he has is getting him into high places i mean He's going to like the VIP meet and greet, right? Like it says that even the king enjoys Naaman's company. So he's rubbing shoulders with the king. He's living the life, right? But, you know, although he's got all this great stuff going on, he's this mighty man of valor, says Naaman had leprosy. Well, leprosy during the time of Naaman, uh, let's just say it's a little worse than the case of eczema. Leprosy meant he's a dead man walking. It's terminal. In fact, Jesus, looking back, said nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. So now kind of circle back and picture Naaman's life like this. And maybe many of the guys out there can relate to this. So much for being the sort of man on the outside, that armor that he wears as that commander that leads his men into battle fearlessly. Hey, what's really going on underneath that armor that we don't see, Naaman? What's happening to your skin underneath that clothing that we don't see? Well, what's really happening is he's literally deteriorating. He's falling apart. He is a dead man walking well, how quickly I related with that guy right there. I mean, I wear the armor of I'm a seal. I got it going on. I got it figured out. What in reality? What's the truth? I felt like Naaman. I I felt like, dude, I am deteriorating underneath it all. Like I'm falling apart. I felt like that dead man walking. And so I find myself listening. Like I want to hear, you know, Naaman's story. Sounds almost like a, a movie the way that it's playing out. And so Hearing Naaman's story, he's tried everything he could do to try and fix himself with this leprosy, but this isn't something he could fix on his own. Winds up hearing about this man of God, serves the God of Israel. He'll fix you with your leprosy. He goes, 150 mile trip, enemy occupied territory, bring in his wealth with him. Equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars, gold, silver, apparel. He'll do whatever he has to do. Just fix me with my leprosy. Well, the guy doesn't end up coming to the door sends a servant to the door, gets relayed this message. If you just go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River, when you come up, your flesh will be restored to you. You will be clean. Well, Naaman's response was fury. It literally says that in 2 Kings 5, he became furious. He turned, he's leaving in a rage. He's saying out loud what he expected, expecting that guy to come out of his place. He thought he's going to, you know, really put on a show, some special effects, wave his hand over the place, call the name of the Lord, his God. And just like, boom, strike, strike this leprosy away. But instead, he gets told just to like go dip dip himself in this water. So he's just going on about the water thing, like just furious over it. If you haven't caught it yet, what's real name? It's real obstacle here. The real obstacle, the real problem isn't that leprosy. It's his pride. It's his ego. He won't just go do this simple thing. It seems like a foolish thing to him. And it gets pointed out that that's exactly what our problem is you know, is our pride and our ego. Cool thing is, is that Naaman's surrounded by some guys that care about him. They're looking out for him. And I'm sure they don't know exactly how this works, but they know this much. We just need to get our Naaman back in front of that God of Israel and step back and let the fireworks take place. Let the God of Israel do that heavy lifting. And so they're pleading with him, like, come on, Naaman, look, you know, if this guy came out and, you know, gave you some big, great thing to do, you would have done it. And that's so true. Like, what if Naaman was given a hell week to go through. Like you want to be fixed of your leprosy. Well, here's the rite of passage. You got to go through, right? You're going to go on a journey, man. You're going to go slay a dragon. You know, you got to go run over this broken glass with bare feet. You got to go do this CrossFit exercise. And I'm sure a guy like you can get it done with your own strength and might, you know, and if you, if you get it done, you'll be fixed of your leprosy. He wasn't given something like that. If he was given a task like that, he probably would have gone for it. Right. He probably would have been like, show me where to start. But because it was such a simple thing, what it seemed like to him, a foolish thing, not doing that. That's exactly what it says about the preacher of the cross in the New Testament. This is the preacher of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. Well, no doubt about it. Naaman is in a state of perishing, but it's something these guys say, it gets through. And and I think he he realizes like, this is it. This is for real. It's not about the water. In order for me to live, I got to die to self. It's his pride, the ego. And so he makes a 180 degree turn. He decides he'll go do it. And I think he understands now that if I'm faithful, if I just do what this God of Israel wants me to do, humble myself and be faithful, he'll do the heavy lifting. He'll come through. He'll do the hard part. Seven times he dips himself in that Jordan river. When he comes up that seventh time, brand new skin like that of a baby, the Bible says, I remember being on the edge of my seat and I'm, thinking, man, this is like watching a movie, you know, like good for him. Well, it gets personal. It gets pointed out that, look, just as God provide a way out for Naaman, he's provided a way out for you and I as well. And it's not in the form of dipping yourself in some water. It came in the form of him sending his son on a rescue mission. He dipped his son down into the world and that's Jesus. And he lived a holy, perfect, sinless life. So while like I've turned my back on God, and I've lived a life that would not be pleasing to him. All Jesus did was lived a life that did please him. Never once turned his back on God. Not for one split second was he ever a sinner. Lived a perfect life. And this leprosy in the Old Testament, what is that a picture of today? Spiritually speaking, it has it, it's like us. We are spiritually lepers. You know, we are spiritually spotted and blotted and blemished. We're struck through with this disease, S-I-N positive, sin. You know, but Jesus was holy and pure without blemish. And then he goes to the cross. What happened at the cross? What what happened at the cross is that's where Jesus traded skin with you and I. He took our leprosy, as it were, our sin, all of our shame, all of our regret, all of the things that we have done that we know displeases God. And there's there's penalty for that. You know, we have wronged a perfect, morally perfect creator. And so because he is just, which means he can't let crimes go unpunished, it must be judged. He doesn't want to pour out that judgment on us, though. So what did he do? Just like us as fathers, we love our children. And if we could, we would suffer for them. If we could take the pain, we would do that for them. And we could talk about how we would do that. That's what God did do. His son went there on the cross. Jesus took the penalty of our sin. He stepped in. In our place, traded skin with you and I, paid the penalty of sin and fought the cross, and rose again from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death. And his declaration to you and I is, Because I live, you also shall live, speaking of overcoming the grave. But remember, for Naaman, what was the turning point? He had to do that 180. He had to humble himself. Well, this comes through self denial. Jesus says, If anyone wants to come after me, they must deny self. In other words, you take this path that you're on that you're walking on your own and trying to figure it out all in your own without God. He's not even in the picture. You say, you know what? I got to admit I am on the wrong path. I have wronged my creator. I've sinned against you. And I agree with you that I am wrong. That's what it means to confess. It means to agree. You confess your sins. You know, you, you turn from your sin. You say, not just, sorry, I got caught. I'm so sorry. I want to change. And so you repent, you put your faith and trust in Jesus, which what are you trusting him to do? You're trusting him to do the hard part. He does the hardest part. He pays for your sin and fold the cross. So we call him a savior wife because he saves you from your sin. The moment any man does that or woman, you know, it's not another man's word on it. It's God's word on it. He says, he'll remember your sin no more. He removed as far away as the East is from the West. Like that, that leprosy that was just wiped away, blotted out like brand new skin the new Testament says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. That times refreshing may come. And so that's what I did March 14, 2007. Here I am an active duty Navy seal, just getting hit, you know, with the truth of this message. And I realized like, this is it, this is what has been off in my life, like all this time. And so I found myself doing just that, that night, repenting of my sin, putting my faith and trust in Jesus as my savior and Lord and experiencing the truth, the scriptures, like the, the scriptures are true. If any man be in Christ, He is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. My outlook was completely different. You know, now it's like I could actually enjoy being a seal in a way I never enjoyed it before. And it's proper category where it belonged. Not as God of my life. Not as the most important thing. Not as the thing that's supposed to deliver for me happiness and fulfillment. But as a secondary thing. And that's where you get Christ saying, if any man be in Christ, he's that new creation. Old things pass away behold, all things become new. I'm sorry, that's the apostle Paul that says that. But what we can say this, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so you do it in that name. And so instead of being a seal for me, which is like decaf, it just doesn't deliver. I can say, no, 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 not for me. Not whatever I do in my life for me. I'm going to do it for thee. I'm going to be a seal for Christ. You know, that's where Jesus says, if you drink of my living water, you'll never thirst again. All these other things in life, they leave you hungry and thirsty for more. You'll never be satisfied if you make them the most important thing in your life. But once you've had that living water, which is Christ, you never thirst again in the sense that you're complete. I could die happy, you know, and anything else moving forward in life is just, it's just supplementary. It's just additive, right? It's just, it's extra. It's, it's the gravy, you know, that you get. And so that's kind of, that's where the life like really turned around and, and changed for me is, uh, you know, hearing the message of the cross like that.
0: Identity. You mentioned identity, and there is a before identity and an after identity. And it sounds like before being a Navy SEAL was not just your identity, but your purpose. And then all of a sudden you're on the SEAL teams and you're like, whoa, I made it. I'm a new guy. I haven't done anything. Here's all these battle-hardened SEALs that have done deployments. They're making me feel like I'm nothing, rightly so. I'm getting a nice piece of humble pie after feeling on top. Man, these emotions, what, what am I missing? Well, you were missing your identity in Christ. Mm-hmm it sounds like what you learned from this, that being a SEAL was your occupation. It was your worldly profession, but your identity, Mm -hmm. who people see you as, which is what an identity is, your identity was in Christ. So things align for you, Chad. You're on a deployment. You find Christ. What happens after that?
1: Yeah. Fast forward, you know, the, the final deployment that I ended up going out onto Iraq and, and even the final operation, it has sort of a a closure to it. You know, if you will, I mean, remember how I was that young guy staring through a TV screen thinking, man, if I could just get my hands on one of these guys, I would, I would love to get revenge for Scott. You know, I had, I had murder in my heart. I had hatred. Thankfully, like I said, those reasons matured along the way. Uh, Not just from coming to Christ, but in the SEAL teams you are taught, amen, we preserve life wherever possible. It's not our job to go over there and just kill them all and let God sort them out. Like we preserve life wherever possible. Final operation that we're going on, uh, we're working with the Iraqi Special Operation Forces. And one of our goals with these guys is just to simply teach them how to fight their own fights. Best way to do that is to go out there and fight with them, you know, side by side. On this particular operation, we decided to take off for our American color uniforms. They requested that we would put on their uniforms to blend in with them. And so we're blending in with these guys. They found this source that told them about a man that's an Iraqi policeman uh, by day. But we find out he's one of these ballmakers that we're looking for at night back home. And so we're rolling out to go get this guy. And uh, I'm up there in the Humvee behind the 50 cal, rolling out, night vision goggles on, kind of in the back of my mind thinking... This is it, man. Final operation. And then just a matter of days from now, I'll be back in Huntington Beach, California, surfing in the ocean. And so I'm kind of celebrating in my mind, right? And uh, of course, that's you know, usually when the worst thing happens, right? Just before you're about to come home. What we didn't know is that we are being set up the entire time to get thrown into uh, the worst circumstances we've been in on this employment as we're getting set up on this ambush. As we're rolling out, I remember seeing this sign in, in Arabic. And it really popped out to me this night. We passed it before, but it never popped out like it did this night. It says Fallujah, Iraq. And the thought was, what are the odds that Scott stared at that same sign that I'm looking at right now? Pretty good chance. It's not that much time had passed by. It's a big old sign. It's a big sign you see before you go turning into Fallujah. And so it just struck me. huh, here I am over here now where he was looking at it probably the same sign. And then I thought to myself, as I was looking at that, I remember having this conscious thought of like, man, like little did he know, like what was about to happen in the following moments? Well, here I am looking back now thinking little did I know as I thought that we're getting set up on a very similar scenario. So we go pull it up to this guy's house and the short of it is that he knew that we're coming the whole time. He had buddies set up in three different barricaded firing positions and you know, as we're about to make our way from, you know, vehicles through that open space, uh, that's where you could say everything broke loose. We start getting shot at from three different directions, taking effective fire. And, uh, you know, we're in this gun battle for our lives. And it was the team's ability to shoot, move and communicate. And really against all the odds as my assault leader is just like, all right, boys, we're getting out of here alive that I need you to push left. And, you know, we're, we're laying on a heavy offense. The goal is just look at we lost at, oh, I'm a Surprise. Let's just get out of here safely and alive. We turned the fight around. We wind up killing these guys and driving back those that didn't want to fight anymore, getting into the house and capturing the guy, wounded but alive. And like I said, this is one of the differences between us and them over there. We preserve life, you know, wherever possible. I ended up getting the responsibility to carry this guy in our own hospital, which I didn't volunteer for that. Nobody wanted to do that, you know, but I, I get pointed out like, hey, come on. So we're carrying this guy in our own hospital. I remember as I'm carrying him, looking down at him, you know, these guys are animals, man. They're savages, right? Like he was just trying to kill us and the guys I'm with. So I don't have like a love for him at all. Uh, But I remember kind of just looking at him and thinking to myself, like, man, you are so lucky I became a Christian because I don't know how I would handle this moment like right now. And even later, even later after becoming like, later, like, while I was out there, right that that's like the final thing I did in Iraq. Here I was thinking through a TV screen watching this like what I would do to if I got a hold of one of these guys, now I got one like right here in my arms, helpless. and for all I know, he celebrated what happened to Scott, you know I'm sure it was a celebration to him and uh, I just really felt like that was a, a sort of an evidence that God really got a hold of me and changed my heart because I kind of felt like I was a little bit of an outlier from the rest of the guys in terms of just how much hatred I felt, you know, for, uh, you know, some of these guys over there responsible for doing the types of things that, you know, happened to Scott. And so I, Iraq I needed that come to Jesus, you know, to, to bring me back a little bit. So that was like one of the last things I did in Iraq was, so I, I felt like, man, the Lord kind of gave me a closure, you know, on that. And I'll just be real. Like, I don't know how many days we're we're over there still after that. That was the last operation we did. We're getting ready to go, and then I remember hearing, overhearing, uh, as we're like leaving pretty soon. I remember overhearing one of the guys say, "Hey, did you hear they uh, caught that guy, the the butcher of Fallujah? He's on base. They have him right now. The one that was responsible for uh, the killing the Blackwater guys." Dude, I struggled so hard. I felt like I just passed this big test of like hand delivering this guy off into our own hospital. All right, I passed the test, get him off my hands, let's go home. And then for like the next night or two while we were still there, I had to battle like thoughts of doing something just awful, you know? Like that was that was war right there. Like knowing this guy's on our base, he's held up somewhere on our base right now. And I start like devising plans in my head of how could I get to him? and like recklessly go after him again but i like thankfully like the lord just got me through that one you know it's like with every temptation god provides the way of escape and i battled my way through and so there's always going to be tests it's not like once you become a christian everything just gets you know easy you know in this life you will have trouble but now you have resources available to you to fight that fight that i might not have had before without christ i don't know if i i would have been able to kind of get through that without doing something stupid.
0: Unbelievable Chad. So God was able to to turn your heart around from a heart of vengeance and revenge and wrath from what happened to your mentor Scott to now I'm here to do my job. I have a clean conscience. If I have to neutralize the enemy, I'll neutralize the enemy, but it's not out of hate. It's not out of wrath, revenge. I'll do my job. But then you're in a situation where you have power over this captive and you start dealing with some temptation and God helped you overcome that temptation. But then if that wasn't bad enough, you find out that on your very base, there's the guy that's responsible for Scott's death. And you have to, to go through those thoughts. And for our listeners out there, you know, the thoughts, you can't necessarily always control those thoughts. You can allow those thoughts to come into your head, but it's what you do with them afterwards Mm. that really counts. So, Chad, what a story of just transformation in your life. And you took this story in the form of a book, Seal of God. Is that correct? Can you tell us a little bit more of, about how this story ends and, and where you're at now?
1: Sure. Uh, so, the, the book, Seal of God, is really, I mean, we just kind of gave a little thumbnail sketch, right? Of just like that journey from, you know, being a kid and growing up in, you know, Southern California and, and not really having much direction to deciding I want to go in. And it just really paints the picture of like what it was like to spend that time with Scott and get more mentored by him and just everything that happened. And then, you know, what seal training was like, you know, my buds class and kind of go into, you know, some of the, the details of, of how weak and then ultimately come into faith in Christ. Hence the title, you know, sometimes people go, you oh, know, I didn't really see that whole God thing coming. It's like uh, the title seal of God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so It's not like a faith book from the very beginning. Um, It's basically the faith aspect of it comes in when it came into my life. And so uh, that's why some people are like, I didn't see that coming. It's like, well, it's the title of the book, Steel of God. Uh, But, you know, now what am I up to? I guess you could say the book kind of ended on, you know, where I'm I'm off to now, which is the way I, I look at it is, you know, this whole like thing about being a seal. It's like, if we're effective at what we do, we destroy the plans of, uh, you know, a guy like a suicide bomber where, you know, a suicide bomber, what's their goal? It's, they know they're going down. They know they're dying, right? Their goal though, is they're not content with just that. They want to take out as many people with them as they possibly can in the process. And I mean, we've seen that as recently as, you know, Afghanistan losing 13 of our service members and so many more Afghanis. That's, that's their version of success. Go down, drag them down with you. In a very similar way, I've come to the realization that that is Satan. You know, that's how Satan operates. Satan is strapped. You know, he's strapped with that vest, if you will. He's going down. Right, we've read the back of the book. He's going to hell, but he's not content with just that, is he? What does he want to do? He wants to take up as many people with him as he possibly can in the process. And we got to make that personal because it is personal, you know, that's our family members. That's our friends. Those are the, are the co-workers, the people that we're around. But if we are successful, every card-carrying Christian is a soldier for Christ, 2 Timothy 2.3. So as a soldier for Christ and being a part of God's special forces, if you will, if you're effective at what you do, just like special operators, we sabotage the plans of an enemy that intends on hurting people. Well, we should be sabotaging the plans of the enemy of our soul. And so that's why I call it divine sabotage. And again, that quote by Lewis, you know, enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. But Christianity is the story of how our rightful king has landed. You might say in disguise and now is calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. So hopefully that makes a little bit more sense to people out there. Now, that campaign of sabotage is overthrowing the plans of the ultimate suicide bomber. Satan and it is global war on terror. It says the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one, and we all have a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. Not a 50 caliber machine gun in this sense, but the greatest weapon we have is the gospel message. It's the greatest weapon to charge the kingdom of darkness
0: with. Well said, Chad. You know, Your story is powerful and it's impacted a lot of people and will continue to impact a lot of people. And it just goes to show you why God gave you the resources and preserved you the way that he did to get you to the point that you're at now. Any closing remarks for our listeners out there, knowing that a lot of them are looking to take that next step in their life to get on and shipped out into the military and start special operations selection?
1: I think that maybe sometimes guys might be a little bit on the edge and and hesitant. And I'm not trying to push you over the edge, you know, with this, but you know, whatever it is that you have in front of you, don't fail to do it because you're afraid of failing. You know, that's like, there's everyone for the most part, you know, we're all afraid to fail. That's, that's a healthy fear. You know, there's healthy fears out there. Healthy fear will, Keep you walking on the sidewalk instead of stepping out into the boulevard and you know and hit by a car. You know there's healthy fears that are out there. It's a healthy fear to have a, a fear of, of failure, right? Um, that'll keep you from failing to some degree. Uh, but at the same time, there's something far worse than failing, and that's just failing to even try at all. So I love that quote by Theodore Roosevelt. But the the man in the arena, it's more of like more than a quote. Uh, I'll give my best to try and, and share it with everyone because I at one point put it to memory and maybe this could be a, a final motivation for everyone uh, but he says it's not the critic that counts it's not the man who points out of the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better he says the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood who strives valiantly who errs who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming. But who strives to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, who spends himself on a worthy cause and who in the end at the best knows the victory of high achievement. And who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place will never be among those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Men, that is the guy that you never want to be, is that cold and timid soul. Who doesn't know what it's like to have victory, and he doesn't even know what defeat is like. That is the one thing that is far worse. And so, better to have failed while daring greatly than to have failed to have tried at all.
0: Well, there you have it, Seal of God, Chad Williams. Chad, how do we find you? How do we get a hold of you? How do we support you on this mission?
1: easy way to find me is the title of the book seal of God, um, on Instagram. That's my handle. It seems to be the only social media I'm actually active on. I've kind of like not done anything with the other ones. Um, I've got a, a website seal and, uh, you can get signed copies of the book there. Uh, I've also got, uh, some apparel on there, some shirts. Uh, so yeah, that's where you can find me seal or just find me at uh seal of God on Instagram.
0: Chad Williams, what an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day, brother. Thank you. My honor. A truly inspiring and powerful episode with our guest, Navy SEAL Chad Williams. If you're still listening to this episode, don't turn down your volume. Keep listening. We're asking for your support. Running this podcast at the quality and level that we do requires an ample amount of time, resources, and funding. We would be grateful If you would consider supporting us via the SOCOM Athlete Patreon Fund through a small monthly donation, whether it be just a dollar or two dollars or three dollars, any amount that you feel comfortable supporting us with is greatly appreciated. Our Patreon Fund can be located here on the episode caption by clicking on the link or by going to www.patreon.com slash SOCOMathlete or simply typing in SOCOMathlete patreon in a google search additionally if you have an iphone please consider giving us a simple five-star review or a written review these help tremendously in the apple algorithm of giving our podcast increased visibility and getting our message out to a larger audience thank you again for listening to the socom athlete podcast send me this is your host jason we are out up and over! Down up. Get up. 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 Down.